Ephesians chapter 6. Have you ever thought about how you would affect change when you have absolutely no power and no influence? I think that today we're going to look at a passage in which Paul does that in the most brilliant way. My, my hope is when we're done looking at this passage, you're, you're just you're as amazed as I am at what Paul does in this passage. Because it's hard when you don't have a voice to feel like you are making a difference, right? You, you don't have the ability, you don't have the influence, you don't have the, the control to be able to change anything. But that's exactly where Paul and this new thing called the Christian church was in the nation of Rome. They, they were a minority of the minority, right? This, this was a, a tiny little movement that was starting that was not even officially recognized for a long time as a religion. How would you, if you were Paul influence and leverage the gospel for the greatest amount of change possible? Think about that question for a minute. The reason why I want you to think about it is not just because that's what Paul is doing in our text, but I would argue that's what we need to learn how to do in America. We're, we're not the majority. We're, we're not the loudest voice in the room anymore. We're not the ones typically in positions of power or control or influence. So how do you leverage your life for the sake of the gospel? How do you do that? I think Paul gives us an amazing manifesto in these three illustrations about how the gospel should be reshaping our lives. Every single relationship that we experience in our day-to-day -day life needs to be transformed, it needs to be changed, it needs to be filtered through the story of the gospel. And that should lead to us changing the way we act in those daily relationships. And if we do it, like Paul did, and like the early church did, I think we will see an amazing revival. Maybe not nationwide, but at least in our community. At least in our spheres of influence that we have. Because unlike Paul and the early church in Rome, we actually do have some access to the political process. We do have at least a vote. We have a voice that we can lift up without being shot right? Or in Roman time, crucified. Paul in the early church didn't have that. So they had to do things differently. And one of the ways that, that Paul did it, and, and I would encourage you to think about how you can do it, is he planted the seed of an idea that would eventually grow into a tree that was a massive movement. And that movement is still going on today, I would argue, throughout this world because of what 
Paul says in these three illustrations about mutual submission to one another, what life looks like when we are conformed to the image of the gospel. So let me just recap real quick where we're at in Ephesians. Paul lays out the benefits, chapters 1 through 3. He starts with the gifts. He starts with, this is what Jesus has done for you. He has given you so many good gifts. Now, because of that, not because I said so, but because I love you. He, he challenges us. He implores this church at Ephesus and, and the rest of the churches in the area to now act and behave differently like you are a part of this new creation called the church. Last week, we looked at how Paul translated this vision of Christian community into marriage. And for those who weren't here last week, let me just remind you what Paul did, because it's the same technique that he's going to utilize in today's two illustrations. See, Paul is addressing in these three illustrations day-to-day life. For the majority of these new Christians who are living in Ephesus, they're living in a Roman culture, these three topics were everyday life. It would make sense that he would start with marriage. That's the most everyday relationship one can have, right? You, You don't get to say, okay, well, I'll see you later. I'll be back in a couple months. Yeah, we're still married, but I'm not going to hang around you. No, you're with them if you want to stay married anyway, right? It's an everyday relationship. So that's where Paul starts. But I also want you to notice the pattern in which he he uses in each of these illustrations, because again, he uses the same pattern three times. And anytime the Bible repeats itself, it's important. And Paul starts by addressing the wives, And he explains their roles as a wife, considering the story of the gospel and how they should respond to the gospel by coming under the leadership of Christ as a wife, by coming under the leadership of their husband. But then he turns immediately and he he lays into the husbands. And, And he's like, God has placed you, fellas, in this position of leadership in the family. And and Jamie didn't touch on this too much last week, but what Paul is saying and what he is urging the church at Ephesus to do is not what was done in Roman culture. This is not the way marriage looked in Roman culture. Women didn't have a vote. Women didn't have, they had certain rights, but definitely far less than men. But Paul doesn't care about how the majority lives. He cares about bringing glory to God, right? So Paul goes back to the gospel story and he shows husbands how Jesus led by giving up his own life for his bride. It's a radically different picture of marriage. And Paul paints this beautiful marriage dance in the gospel in these verses. In this dance, the husband and wife are Mutually coming under one another in love and respect. 
The husband, because of his position of authority, is called to lay down his life. Let me help you guys. You're called to lay down your hobbies, lay down hunting, lay down fishing, lay down football season. Right? Not, not many of us are, are having to jump in front of bullets for our wives. But every day we choose ourselves over our families. And Paul's saying, you got to lay that down. You got to live differently in light of the story of the gospel. Paul is painting a profound picture of what it means to be married as a believer. In such a short passage, it, it commands us to do a thousand things all at the same time. While both husband and wife come under one another in love and submission. That pattern is the exact same thing as he's going to do in the next two illustrations in our text. He, he starts with marriage and then he moves to our children to how we raise our kids. Look at there in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Paul says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now remember, at this time, church would not have looked like it looks now. There would have been groups of families gathering in different places around the city of Ephesus to worship. The elements would have been the same, but the format would have been slightly different. They would have been meeting in someone's large house or a large courtyard, gathering together as groups of families. And I want you to notice something very important that would be very easy for us to just read right past this morning. Mason, Paul is addressing you. If you're in this room and you're under 20, Paul is talking to you. He's addressing the children. Think about that for a minute, right? It's just, it's so, we, we know this passage we've some of you have probably heard it a hundred times. And it's easy to run right past children, obey your parents. Paul is talking to the children. There's an assumption Paul has about children here. He could have said, parents, tell your children to obey. But he doesn't. So one, he assumes they're there. They're present. Again, Culturally, that would make sense. The whole groups of families would be gathering together to hear the teaching of the apostles. So he assumes that, A, children are there. B, he assumes they're listening. Are you listening, kids, this morning? Because Paul's got a message for you this morning, specifically for you. Because I also want you to see something else about this passage. Luke treats children with the same dignity and respect as he does the adults. Remember, every one of these illustrations is about mutual submission. Not, I am better than you. Not, parents are better than children. Children are better than parents. 
Husbands are better than wives. Every one of these illustrations are taking us back to chapter 4, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Kids, Paul values you. I hope you realize that this morning. And I hope you realize as a church this morning that we value you. If your parents have brought you here, it's because they value you. And so Paul, he assumes this, this dignity that, that children have in which they are equal in status with their parents to be addressed by them. Now look at what he actually says. Obey your parents in the Lord. Now what does that mean? And what he doesn't mean is your parents have to be in the Lord to obey them. In other words, you don't, you don't get a cop out, you know, it's like, well, my parents aren't Christian, so I don't have to obey them. I don't have to honor them. No, that's not what he's saying here. His main point here is that, kids, your obedience is first to the Lord, second to your parents. Your obedience is first to the Lord. This is a theme Paul is going to repeat over and over in this section. It's the same for wives. It's the same for husbands. It's true of children as well. And parents. When we point ourselves under the submission, under that submission, what, what we're actually doing is something that's being done to Jesus. So in other words, when a child obeys their parents, and they are really, what they're really doing is they're obeying and honoring Jesus by coming under the parents' authority. Conversely, when you're not obeying your parents, you're not obeying Jesus. The only way we can respect their authority and honor them is by obeying Jesus. Do you see how these, these two things work together? Then Paul starts, he, he, he starts quoting here from the Ten Commandments. He quotes the fifth of the Ten Commandments, which is honor your father and mother. Now, honoring someone is treating them in a way that is consistent with their position in the relationship. Paul doesn't assume authority is bad. Paul assumes authority is necessary. And Paul is saying that when you honor someone, you're honoring them in their position of authority that is God-given. God is the one who establishes this authority. But he goes on and he quotes the promise that comes with this command. The promise is that it may go well with you and have a long life in the land. Now, you might read that, kids, this morning and think, man, all I got to do is honor my parents and like I'll live to be 100 and everything will go great for me. 
But that's not what he's saying here. It's not what he's getting at at all. See, Paul, Paul assumes you know where this verse comes from. And, and you know what happens in the story leading up to this verse and what happens in the story after this verse. This verse comes from Exodus chapter 20. This is a point in Israel's history in which they have been freed from slavery. They are now doing a, a long camp out at Mount Sinai, right? They're hanging out for a year. And this is a place in which God establishes his covenant with his people. And he gives them these Ten Commandments. Now, where are they headed? They are headed to the promised land, right? And God is calling them to live in a new way. To, to live as a new kind of country, a new kind of people that are God's people. And so he gives these commandments. And he says, honor your mother and father so that it may go well with you and you'll live long in the land. So what's, what's Paul saying there? Well, I think it's somewhat straightforward. The fundamental element, one of the, the fundamental things about this new God community is children honoring their parents. And when they do that, it goes well for them. Right? But it doesn't just go well for the kids, it also goes well for the parents. Parents, can you testify to that? When your kids are honoring you, life is a lot easier. There's a lot less heartache. There's a lot less stress. A lot less discouragement. A lot less depression. Right? But when they're not honoring us, it doesn't go well for us. So this promise, this blessing, goes both ways. It's good for the children because... If they honor their parents, it will go well for them. But it's also good for the parents. And God is trying to help the nation of Israel to see, if you want to live for me, if you want to be my people, this is a fundamental building block of what it means to be God's people. Children, honor your mother and father. You will live long in the land. Now, Paul takes that illustration, he takes that analogy, and he's now applying it to these Christians. But see, as, as Christians, we understand this earth is never our promised land. We have another promised land that we are looking forward to. So he, he takes that, that principle, that illustration, and he then lays it over the top of Christianity. And he said, those people were heading for a country, a specific land that God would give them. You are heading to a land in which you'll live forever. Honor your mother and father, and it will go well with you, and you will live long in the land. You see what he's doing there? This is more than just about picking out a commandment. He wants you to understand the overall thing of what's happening to the nation of Israel, and then lay that over the top of the Christian church. And Paul's using the same analogy for these Christian children in Ephesus. 
Obeying their parents has an inherent benefit, the, the well-being, peace, and flourishing of their life. Look at verse 4. Now he addresses the fathers. So again, I, I would argue Paul is using this pattern of, pattern of lesser responsibility, greater responsibility. Wives, submit to your husband. That's a lesser responsibility. You're never asked to jump in front of a bullet and lay down your life for your husband. But husbands, you are. Greater responsibility. With authority comes greater responsibility. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, remember Paul's pattern of mutual submission in these three illustrations. He's, he's moving from lesser to greater. Here it's children and then fathers. So now he addresses the one with the greater authority, therefore the greater responsibility in the relationship. And Paul starts out by address, addressing this issue of provoking your children. Man, I'll tell you what, Paul says a lot with a few words sometimes. And he, he just kind of cuts right to the heart of the matter. And, and that's what he's doing here. So, sometimes, you know, when I'm reading Paul, I kind of hate it because I feel like he's been reading my mail. Like he just, he, he knows what's going on in my life and the guy's not even here. He jumps right in with, with, I would argue, every father's struggle. And for that matter, every parent's struggle. Provoking our kids. I mean, fathers are so good at this. They've created a whole genre of comedy nowadays that serves as a way of provoking their children, right? I'm sure you've all heard at least one dad joke. If not, see David Breeden after the service. <laughs> He'll fill you in. But Paul has, has a new vision of what parenting should look like in Christ. Parenting in Christ is where parents don't provoke their children to anger. But what exactly does he mean by this? Let me first be clear about what it doesn't mean. He doesn't mean correcting our children when their behavior will hurt them or others, even if that means they get angry with us. As a parent, that is your job. That is your responsibility. And there are going to be times in which they are doing things that will hurt them or hurt others, and you have to intervene, and you have to stop it. And when you do, they are going to be angry. That is not what Paul is talking about here. Because that is our responsibility as adults to protect our children. And while Paul doesn't go into great detail, let me give you a couple of examples that I have seen over the years of what Paul is trying to get out here. One of the biggest ways I see parents provoking their children to anger is by being inconsistent with their parenting. 
One day, you make a big deal about some behavior your kid is doing. And then like, you know, a couple days later, the kid does it again, but this time, you're too tired as a parent to address the issue again, so you just let them do it. And then a week goes by, and you make a big deal out of the behavior again. And your children are sitting there looking at you going, is it yes or is it no? I don't understand. You're being inconsistent with me. And so that provokes a lot of children to anger. Because it's like, wait, last week I could do this and you didn't care. You saw me doing it. And now you're getting upset and livid and mad. What's, what gives? So inconsistency. It also goes for the way we punish our children inconsistently. Our inconsistency can provoke our kids to anger. Another example is that kids are being kids and doing what they normally do in your house, but you're exhausted. It's been a long day. You just want a little bit of quiet in your house. So you send all the kids to their rooms as a selfish exercise of your authority. Because I can, I will. One final way is not paying attention to the huge impact your actions and your words have on your kids. You may come and sing about the glory of God, talk about His goodness, and praise Him on Sunday morning, but then your kids watch you live a completely different way throughout the week. These are just a couple of examples of what Paul means by provoking our kids to anger. Paul is saying, parents, we have a role of responsibility but it's not limitless. We are not gods of the house. Notice what he says next. Parenting it's, it's about your, it's about your selfish agenda and the kids, excuse me, parenting is not about your selfish agenda and the kids are just along for the ride in your story. That's not what he says next. He says you have a responsibility to them. And it's not to be selfish or to only do it when you feel it. Instead, you are to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Notice that that instruction that we give our kids is not our own. It's the Lord's. He is the one that's granted you the authority. He is the one that has granted you also the responsibility that comes with that authority. We are called to be stewards of our children, not owners of our children. We do not own them. We'll see more about that in the next illustration. 
We do not exercise limitless power over them, and we should not exercise selfish authority over them. Why? Because we are to mutually submit to one another in Christ. Our authority must always be submitted to the authority of Jesus. How do we teach our kids to deal with their emotions? How do we teach our kids to deal with broken relationships? How do we teach our kids to deal with criticism? We take them to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' teaching is the only thing that should shape our parenting. Now, real quick, two common pitfalls I see that people fall into is that they tend to rely more heavily on how their parents raised them than they do on Jesus' teachings. Second, and this applies mainly to older Christians, and so younger parents, I want you to hear the other side of this, but, but for older Christians, they, they tend to try to teach younger Christians how they did it rather than this is what Jesus taught. Well, you're not doing it the way I did it. Well, did you do it the way Jesus did it? Because that's the only thing that should shape how we parent our children. So let me just encourage you young moms and young dads, people love to give it parenting advice. But I want you to ask yourself, is that the way Jesus would have done it? Is that shaped by the way in which Jesus taught us to parent our children? I'm not saying you can't glean some good things. But always run it through that filter. That should reshape everything involved in our parenting. By allowing this to shape us as parents, we will begin to shape our children in the instruction of the Lord. This is a beautiful and profound picture of family, isn't it? Paul wants the children to recognize the role that God has given their parents. And for parents to recognize the responsibility that should be reshaping the way they parent, considering Jesus. All right, let's move to the next section. He moves into the next day-to-day -day relationship. Verse 5, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God, from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and, in, and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Now, let me, let me start this section, this illustration, by reminding you of a very important truth when you're reading your Bible. We are called as Christians 
to rightly divide the word of truth. Excuse me, the word of truth. Meaning we are to understand it in its context. And one principle that, that helps me with this is every word in the Bible is written for us. But the Bible wasn't written to us. Let me say that again. Every word in the Bible is written for us. But the Bible wasn't written to us. And what I mean by that is we have to be careful of not using the Bible in ways it was never intended to be used. Let me give you a quick example. When the Bible says Jesus is the bread of life, right? In our context today, that would mean that Jesus is the part of the meal that will give me indigestion or is going to cause me to gain a lot of weight. So I should avoid it at all costs. But for the people that those words were written to, bread was a staple of every meal. It was the center of every meal. And so Jesus is saying, I am the center of life. That's a silly example, but, but that's what happens if we're not careful. And we just take the words literally and go, oh, this, is, this was written to me instead of for me. For me means you got to do a little work. you got to do a little study. you got to figure out what's happening. And when most of us hear bondservant, or as some of your translations might say slave, what comes to mind is our context, the North American slave trade, right? And that was one of the saddest chapters in British and American history. And so it's hard for us to comprehend why Paul would even be discussing this in the Bible. People who have forgotten that the Bible wasn't written to us have even used these passages to argue in favor of the Atlantic slave trade. So what I need for you to do this morning is to try to set aside your understanding of slavery from our context to then understand it in the Roman context in which Paul is writing to, to the people that he is writing the Bible to. Now, Roman slavery in some ways is similar but in many ways, is very different. And the difference will help you understand what Paul is doing here. The Atlantic slave trade was about enslaving one people group and separating them from the rest of society. But see, Roman slavery was very different from that. If you were to spend time walking around Ephesus, on average, 25 to 50% of the people that you would meet would be slaves. A quarter to 50% of the population would have been a slave or a bondservant. The first difference is that these slaves were not all one race at all. In other words, you would not have been able to look at them and be like, oh, that, that person, because of their ethnic background, is clearly a slave. And this person, because of their ethnic background, is clearly not a slave. This is one of the ways in which Roman slavery was different. In fact, Romans were often slaves to other Romans. 
Not only that, but slaves were integrated into almost every societal level. And because of that, some slaves even held positions with a lot of authority. This was because how someone became a slave was different. Now, there was a minority, a small amount of slaves that were prisoners of war. And in that case, you, could, you can see a direct translation to our understanding of slavery. But that, that was the minority. That wasn't the majority in Rome. Because there was another kind of slavery that, that Paul seems to be referring to here called bond slavery or being a bond servant. And the best way to describe this form of slavery for us is to imagine that you owned a business and everything's going along fine, everything's great, and then something happens in the economy and you go out of business and you lose everything. Well, during this time, there's no unemployment, there's no disability, there's no institutions to bail you out. So without a safety net... The only option was to find a rich person and sell yourself, even sometimes your family, to this person. So that that way at least your basic needs would continue to be met while you worked off that debt. Your debt would be paid by the rich person and you would become his debt slave. Once you worked off your debt, you would get your freedom back. And this happened all the time. This was a day that slaves would look forward to. There was even a special name they used for this day. Let me, let me teach it to you so that you can impress your friends at work this week. It's called manumission, the day of their freedom. They even got a special hat to wear to indicate to everyone that they were now free. And once again, a citizen of Rome. Not all slaves saw this day, but many did. And so what? So that was a, a reality. That's very different from the Atlantic slave trade, right? But like the Atlantic slave trade, masters were free to do whatever they liked with their slaves because slaves had no rights. Once you sold yourself to a master to pay off your debts, you no longer had any rights. As a citizen, there was no protection. You, you became their property. So in that way, it is similar. And of course, most masters took care of their slaves because they were an asset. Right? They, they're looking at these people as, like, they can't pay off their debt if I beat them. They can't pay off their debt and, and give me my money back if I don't feed and nourish them. Right? So, so they took care of them. But of course... Because humans are fallen and depraved, there were those who neglected and abused their slaves. Masters could even get really angry and upset and could kill their slave, and there was no consequences for them. Because again, they weren't Roman citizens, they were property. Now it's into this context that Paul now speaks. And at this point, we're often tempted from our perspective to argue that Paul should have used these verses to abolish slavery altogether, right? Why not, why not just say that, 
that all of this is just unjust and, and it just needs to end now. I mean, Paul's not afraid of saying controversial things. But when we do that, what we're doing is we're importing our own current cultural filter back into Paul and Roman society. We like to think about people like Granville Sharp, Hannah Moore, William Wilberforce, Christians that, that helped to found the abolitionist cause, ultimately ending the Atlantic slave trade. But these people also lived in a time and a culture where there was a process for them to use called democracy. It's a beautiful thing. Don't take it for granted. But in Paul's case, things are very different. His cultural context is very different. There's only one person in charge. And he ruled authoritarily. If he didn't like what you said, he crucified you. If he didn't like what you said, he might also crucify your whole family. It was not uncommon for them to have mass crucifixions for slave uprises. The guy's name was Caesar. And if there was one thing you didn't do in Rome, it was protest. In Rome, if you protested, you died. There's no movement. There's no rallies. There's just mass crucifixion. <laughs> and the moment Paul and these little house churches, if they would have started protesting, they would have all been wiped off the face of the earth. So what do you do if you're Paul? Paul and the church are a tiny minority in the Roman Empire. They have no power, no influence in the government. What do you do? And what Paul does is so brilliant. He plants the seed of an idea that will one day grow into the abolitionist movement and dismantle all slavery. Verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means anointed messianic king. Paul says, just as you obey your king, Jesus... Obey your masters. But your obedience is not to just look good to your masters, but as slaves to the king, doing the will of God sincerely and wholeheartedly unto the Lord. Why should they serve this way? Because it is the Lord that rewards a person for what they do, no matter if they are a slave or free. Now, it's easy to miss how revolutionary the motivation for acting like this is. Because we get so easily blinded by the issue of slavery that we don't see what Paul is doing here. But Paul gives the revolutionary motivation four times in this passage so that we don't miss it. Did you see it? Let me, let me, let me, let me break down each one real quick. Verse 5. Who are you actually obeying? You obey your king. 
Not just when they are watching you, but instead, remember whose slave you actually are. Ultimately, this man doesn't own you. Jesus does. Who do you use your life, or who, do you, who does your life actually belong to? Look at verse 6. You're a slave to King Jesus. And how does Jesus treat his slaves? Well, the last time I checked, he gave his life on the cross, allowing them to be forgiven of their sins. Through Jesus' stripes, his slaves are healed. Through Jesus, we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, and we live as though they are now through the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus treats his slaves. When you wholeheartedly serve your master, what does it say in verse 7? You're serving the Lord. Who are you actually accountable to for your daily decisions? As you are working for your master. What does it say in verse 8? The Lord. He says it four times. Why does he repeat himself? I believe because it's very, very important. If he had just told Christian slaves, listen, remember, your real master is Jesus. He, he bought you on the cross. That could have been so easily misunderstood, right? I mean, that, that could have led to all kind of confusion. He could have just wrote that, but he didn't. Why? Because it would have been so easy for a Christian slave to misunderstand and then go to their master and say, you're not the Lord of me. Jesus is the Lord of me. You can kick rocks. I ain't doing that stuff today. And there would have been a lot of dead Christian slaves. Again, Rome put down many slave rebellions. This just would have been another in the long list of them. Another in the long list of unsuccessful revolutions. But Paul wants to make a more lasting and the way to go about that is not through revolution and it's not through violence. Again, Christian, hear that this morning. It's not through revolution and it's not through violence. The most effective way to live out being in Christ is by allowing your identity to be so shaped by Jesus' love for you that you realize your your freedom in Christ, and then fully give yourselves to the service of your masters, knowing that ultimately they don't control your destiny. Only Jesus does. While this master may hold my physical life in his hands, Jesus died and rose again on the cross as a statement that death is not even an obstacle for us anymore. Jesus now owns me, not this human. Do you see how Paul is reshaping their identities? He's, he's trying to reshape our identities. Instead of calling for a slave revolt that would have been extinguished in a moment, Paul knows the moment you go down that road, what you are doing is trying to seize authority into your own hands, and therefore you are betraying the identity of the one who gave his life for you. Oh, but don't we get so caught up in that nowadays? Oh, we want to seize control and authority for ourselves. 
when we arrogantly use violence, we become just like the Romans, ruling through force. And we become no different. Instead, Paul says that violence ends at the cross. At the cross, the violence of people dominating over each other stops. And we declare our new identity in Him. The cross is where it stops. Jesus gave up His life for us. And now, He's calling us to do the same. That's revolutionary, right? Now look at what He does. Paul again uses the same pattern of lesser responsibility to greater responsibility. Like with husbands and parents in the previous two illustrations, watch what he's about to do because it's amazing. Look at what he says in verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Again, (laughs) just a couple of words and he just blew up this relationship. What? I'm the master. What do you mean I got to respect them? i got to serve them, right? All that stuff the slave is supposed to do, yet you do that too. Let's pause for a minute because this is amazing. This is revolutionary. They do the same things, the same? You mean we have to treat them as equals? Whoa. This is different. Remember, this is all about chapter 4, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Are you saying that I'm accountable to the same level of authority and behavior as my slave? And Paul's like, yep. That's what I just said. Do the same thing. But... Again, he doesn't stop there. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Masters, stop using threats of violence to accomplish your selfish will. Because in that moment, what you are really showing is that you think that slave belongs to you. Stop it. Christians should know that no human being belongs to another. Paul is challenging these Christian masters to act like their slaves belong to Jesus, not them. Stop using threats because you both share the same master in heaven. Do do you see how Paul is just unraveling the very fabric of slavery here in this passage? You don't actually own them. Who's their real master? It's not you. That person belongs to Jesus. And so do you, by the way. And last time I checked, Jesus doesn't play favorites. He doesn't show partiality. And Paul is walking such a fine line here right now. Paul was convinced that if he could get these Christian communities to be so ingrained in the story of the cross and and the, the ethic of love and holiness and mutual submission for one another, 
that flowing out of that gospel would reshape how they would think. And it would reshape the way that they would act forever. Like you're a slave master out there in your day-to-day work. Well, but when we're together as a family of Jesus, that doesn't matter. To Paul, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So underneath this is is a a principle that he says clearly in many different letters that, that he's written in the New Testament. That we have to put off the old flesh and put on this new flesh. This new way of living. Which is being renewed into the image of Jesus. Resulting in a whole new way of thinking. And here, in this new Christian community, there's neither Gentile or Jew There's not circumcised or uncircumcised. There's not slave or free. Just King Jesus. Notice that Paul is calling us to live lives of order. Respecting the order and authority and responsibility placed on us and allowing the story of the gospel to completely reshape us. Because we live in a time in which We are told the answer is to get rid of authority. That will fix our problems. I want you to understand that's the opposite of the gospel. That's the opposite of, of having a life of order. If you want it to go well with you in the land, then you're going to have to understand that there is authority. God given, there is order in our society. Leadership, parenting, Marriage look completely different now than they did back in Rome. How we parent our kids must be redefined by Jesus, and it should look different than our culture now. So when we look at this passage, and I hope you see the brilliance of what Paul, a person with no influence and no power, is doing right here. Paul is planting the seeds that will eventually undo slavery. But Paul was not in the right time or place to see that tree grow into maturity. Others like Granville Sharp, Hannah Moore, William Wilberforce would each tend this tree that Paul planted here. As others continue to do today until slavery is abolished in every Muslim country in this world. Paul instructs these Jesus communities to begin living this way so that they can begin to reshape and influence Roman society, not by revolt, not through a political process, because they didn't have one. Instead, think, think, about, think about how Paul wanted to change the world. Think about Paul's three-step plan for changing the world. Get married. Step one. That doesn't sound dangerous. Step two, have children. Not just have children, but have children and bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. That's a little bit more dangerous. And then work with integrity as you're doing it unto the Lord. 
That's his three-step plan for revolutionizing a country, revolutionizing a culture. We want to go out and access all these other means. Paul says, get married, have kids, teach them about Jesus. Be the best at whatever it is you do as if you're doing it unto the Lord. I would argue that this is still one of the most effective ways for bringing about change in our country, in our community, in our city. Getting married, raising kids in the way of the Lord, and working with integrity. Plus, unlike Paul and the early Roman Christians, we do have access to a political process in which we can at least participate in how our country is governed. And we should do that as well. In conclusion, Paul, Paul's point in these three illustrations is that every single relationship in our daily life, family, marriage, work, community, every single one should be run through the gospel story. It, it should change the way we deal with everyone we deal with in our day-to-day -day life. Think about the people that you interact with this morning on a daily basis. Think of your spouse if you're married. Think of your parents if you're not married. Think about your kids if you have them. Think about your boss if you have a job. What would it look like to rethink those relationships in light of the gospel? A gospel that says we are all equal and should mutually submit to one another. Now, think of someone you're struggling with in a relationship. And this may be the same person as before, or it may be a different person. What would it look like if instead of shutting them out of your life and ignoring them, you allowed Jesus to reshape your relationship with them? I want to challenge you to find someone in your life. Someone where relationships are tense. Maybe there's a conflict where you don't want to deal with it. And ask yourself, what, what does it mean for your life to tell the story of the gospel in that relationship in the next couple of weeks? Some of you need to go to work tomorrow realizing you don't work for your boss, you work for the Lord. And if he has gifted you to do the work, then you need to work a lot harder than you've been working. Man, this, this, this passage is just packed with a million practical ways to apply it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father.